Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 12th, 2015. This is episode 1518 uh, of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good one for, for you today. I've got a guy named John Adam to come on. He is uh, a new business person. Uh, is particularly in the permaculture space, but that really isn't what's important. It's that he's new to business, doesn't have a background in business, balancing a family and a full-time job and running a startup business with the intention of going to a full-time endeavor eventually. This is something many of you in your walk toward individual freedom and liberty are challenged with. I won't lie to you. I did it. But I'll tell you, it's not easy. It takes sacrifice. There's a lot of demands on you. People are pulling you in multiple directions. When you start to get some traction in your business, you're pulled that way, but it doesn't do all the bill paying yet. Your family wants you. There's only so much time available in a day. You have a full-time job. You have to meet your commitments. It's not easy. And when you bring someone who's already done on the air, they make it sound easier than it is. Because in some instances, in some ways, it is easy. It's a matter of, are you willing to do the work? But while you're doing it, it's difficult. It's a lot like basic training in the Army. When you're done with it, you're like, no, no big deal. When you're in the middle of it rolling around in the mud, you're not exactly happy. And I think sometimes it's good to get a reality check from someone still running that obstacle course. That's what John's doing. We'll have him on in just a moment. Before we do, let us go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? It's amazing that the Berkey Guy has Berkey water filtration systems. I'll tell you, though, we love our Berkey. We love our Berkey so much that... Even with the extensively hard water that really eventually clogged up our set of filters, we invested in another big set of filters with Jeff in December. And in December when I did that, I also ordered a big Berkey uh, for my son and gave it to my son and, and his uh, soon-to-be wife and my you know already really grandson, but officially soon-to-be grandson, and, and said, hey, I want you guys to have this because I want you drinking good, clean water. And for them, I bought the lower filter elements that also remove that nasty stuff uh, from your water called uh, fluoride, which they've put in our water to help our teeth. I liken drinking fluoride to protect your teeth to drinking suntan lotion to protect your lips from a sunburn. I don't want that there. I don't have it in my well water, but my kiddo has it in his city water, so we got him the extra set of elements. And I'll tell you what, we sleep better at night knowing they're drinking clean, fresh water. And I'll tell you another thing, too. You ever get one of those things where they say, yeah, um, we had an accident, and we think you should, like, boil your water now? How long do you drink the water that's messed up before they tell you it's messed up because they figured out that it's messed up because they figure out it's messed up when somebody gets sick? Filtering your water just makes sense. It makes it taste better. Best way I know to do that. The best way I know to do that, and the uh, the most cost effective way I know to do that is with a Berkey. They look great. They have no moving parts. There's nothing to fail. Check them out today uh, at Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason's website, Directive21.com. Next up today, J M Bullion. Look, here's the plan for the dollar. Make it worth less next year than it is this year. 
and then do it again, and then do it again, and then do it again, and then do it again. And this is not conspiracy theorist talk. Notice I'm not even bringing up the national debt and how screwed we are economically in the world, so to speak. That doesn't even matter. If everything works exactly the way it's planned to work, the plan is to make the dollar worth 2% to 4% less every year for infinity. That makes me want to ensure my wealth. Uh, one of the many ways that I do that is with gold and silver. And when I'm looking for gold and silver, I go to jambullion.com because they have the best pricing and they have incredible personalized service with great shipping and on all orders, free shipping. Now, there's a $100 minimum, but I'm going to be completely honest with you. If you're buying silver eagles or something like that over the Internet and you're buying less than about a hundred bucks worth, shipping's going to eat you alive on the cost. Uh, you're looking at maybe 10% or more of the cost just in shipping. So if you're going to buy less than a hundred bucks, go down to your local coin shop or save up, you know, and, and get the better pricing and buy, you know, a hundred bucks or more at a time in your silver and gold investments and uh, order from JM Bullion and they'll ship it to you absolutely for free. And check out the shipwreck silver. That's pretty cool. I bought a tube of those just because I thought they were cool. And, hey, they're made out of silver. Uh, I know this. Silver and gold will fluctuate in price. It will go up and down, left and right, sideways, ping-pong all around. But over the long haul, silver and gold have held their value. Right now, you can buy you can buy a house for about the same number of silver quarters you could have bought a house with in 1964. You think you can buy it with the same number of dollars? I don't think so. That's why I make silver and gold part of my personal wealth insurance plan. You should, too. Best place to do it, again, jambullion.com. Next up today, let us take a look at the year that was the episode. We have 1518, smallpox enters the new world without blankets, Strasbourg dance mania and LSD, and nothing focuses the mind like an impending Ottoman invasion. Yeah, that'll get your attention, but I'm going to read smallpox Enters the new world without blankets. The flu raged through Hispaniola in 1493, but something much worse has reached the new world. Smallpox has regularly been killing by the hundreds of thousands in Europe in the 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s. People who contract this disease are covered in ugly bumps. These bumps might form over the cornea of, of the eye, causing about a third of all blindness at the time. Chance of death... 25% for adults and 80% for children. What it does to the new world is devastating. Smallpox will quickly move to Mexico, then down to Central and South America. It is simply called the pox at the time, but it will be soon called the smallpox to distinguish it from the great pox, which is syphilis, which is more brilliant form of the modern disease of the same name. My take by Alex Shrugged. I have heard... The Europeans handed out blankets filled with smallpox disease as a means to kill off unwitting Indians. The reality is the suggestion was made in 1763 before the USA was formed and over 200 years after the disease was introduced to the New World. Exposing people to ground smallpox scabs in a controlled fashion is called inoculation 
or we call those vaccines today. It was a primary way to help that at the time. The fact that it helped 2% of those exposed into the grave was an improvement over the 25% death rate the population was experiencing before. It seems ridiculous to think that the Indians would be unwitting dupes. They've been exposed to the smallpox for over 200 years at that point. In other words, this was a disease that really killed people. One in four. Right now, we can go back to some of the diseases of modern day that we vaccinated against. That some people don't want to, some people do. Whatever you want to say, and we can say, look, you know, uh, their death rates went down a lot over time just because of modern medicine and sanitation and better care and all. And vaccines only did so much to kick it in. But those diseases had pretty low death rates to begin with. A disease that kills 80% of children is a tough, hardcore, life-threatening disease. It's also a massively disfiguring disease, uh, causing blindness and many other you know, permanent conditions. And you know how they used to vaccinate? You know what he means by controlled exposure? So you get a guy that's dead or dying, and you get a little bit of pus out of one of his pox, and you poke a hole in the other person's arm, and you shove the pus in there. The hope is to actually infect the skin with the disease, cause the body to produce antibodies without actually exposing the person internally to the disease. And yeah, it kills 2% of people, and another group of people actually get full-born disease. So the modern smallpox vaccination, you know what? It's an improvement over the method of the time, and you can see why some people at the time might have opposed vaccinations too. Now, I'd like to point out that the current hysteria around measles is, was, was, was done with such fervent craziness that you would think that it was something akin to smallpox, which it was not. But I'd also like to point out in a Jack was right moment, um, here as we sit on February the 12th, 2015, that eight days ago, Eight days ago, so 14 days would be two weeks. I posted the following on Facebook. So in two weeks, when the media stops hyping measles and moves on to the next bowl of bullshit soup, will all of you people freaking out about it admit you are acting like fools? Or will you be freaking out about the most recent bowl of mierda de toro de jour? which is combining Spanish and French to say bullshit soup of the day, okay? which will probably revolve around ISIS and potentially World War III because they're about to scare the shit out of you about that while your ass clown in chief pretends to be completely incompetent and uh, sets you up for a new election where you will demand safety and security because that's the way the play of the day works out. But, again, 14 days ago I said, so in two weeks when the media stops hyping Ebola... 14 days giving myself a little bit of latitude here. So today I decided, well, how much hype is there about or hyping measles? How much hype is there? Well, on the front page of MSNBC is a story today showing a whole bunch of ISIS people driving down the streets, and it says how to bankrupt ISIS. And then there is a, uh, a video about Valentine's Days and uh, the development of the Boston bomber truck. See, that fits in with ISIS. But if you try to look for measles, uh, you don't find it. It's not even on the MSNBC homepage. On CNN, what is here? Family says student Muslims' faith led to shootings. So let's hamp up all the Muslim contention thing going on. Uh, we got in headlines, we got... 
Uh, one of the things there, Ukraine ceasefire, what's next, right? <laughs> uh, Mueller forced to be ISIS bride. ISIS, Paris killer's widow is with us, right? Um, measles, is it present? Um, yeah, it's a footnote under travel. Subway rider has measles. Let's just go over to Fox News, F-A-U-X is how I would spell it. Fox News, um, there's a, a footnote deeply at the bottom of the page, way below the fold. Two more infants from Illinois daycare center have measles, officials confirmed. This is a footnote headline in health. It's waning. It's going away. It's not that nobody's getting it. It's that it's time for a new steaming mug of mierda de toro, a super de mierda de toro for you. Uh, please start to get a grip on this, and I think that we can use some historical context here. The measles was never smallpox. Smallpox was bad stuff. Again, you do what you want with the vaccination issue. I'm only pointing out to you that the media has led you by fear and anger to take a stance that's illogical because, well, that's what they do as they're part of the cabal. Just saying, my take by Jack Spearco. Thanks again to Alex Shrugged that puts these together for us at tspwiki.com. The Survival, Self-Sufficiency, Sustainability, and Historical Context Wiki put out by the TSP community. You can be a contributor to tspwiki.com. Did you know that you can write articles there? You can edit. You can do all kinds of stuff. Well, I don't know how to do a wiki. Yeah, get on over to tspwiki.com. We have videos that show you how to do everything. It is an awesome wiki, but it can be better if you'll be part of it. Check it out today, tspwiki.com. Before I bring our special guest on, let me again uh, just remind you guys how you can support the show through the Members Support Brigade. You get a bunch of free stuff that would cost you money elsewhere. You get a bunch of discounts on stuff you're probably already buying, and you support the show at about two dimes an episode. If you want to do that, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click upon Members, and you'll see how to sign up there. Remember, you can join for as little as five bucks a month if you want to do that. And uh, you can also pay with Bitcoin. You can pay with uh, silver. You can pay by check, money, order through the mail. Easiest way to do it is sign up online via PayPal. Uh, and uh, you're good to go from that point on. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, first responders. All of you guys do qualify for a discount if you email me before, not after you join. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. TSP service discount in the subject line. Tango Sierra. Papa Charlie service discount in the subject line. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. The email. Again, any email you want to send to my attention, TSPC is the code to put in the subject line to make sure my spam monster doesn't eat it. And I will probably see it if you do that. It might be a couple days later if I dig it out of the spam box, but eventually I will see it. I read all my own email. I do not have a personal assistant. I do not have a secret squirrel email box. That is my main email. If you actually want a response, uh, make your email short, direct, and to the point. And if you have details, include them after you do that in two sentences or less. It's a time constraint issue, nothing more. It's not that I don't care. I just don't have the hours in the day to read 800 emails a day and spend five minutes apiece on them. Just do the math and figure out what that would work out to. But I do read them all. Uh, fortunately for me, I can read really fast. Can't respond to them all, though, guys. All right. With that, I am ready to bring our special guest on the air. Before I do, though, I just want to let you guys know, if you haven't been checking it out, 
Check out The Duck Chronicles. You can do that at the blog. I put it out every day. It's a video of us bringing up 50 new ducks into our homestead flock and all of the issues that we're having moving to a duck-based operation here at Nine Mile Farm, a.k.a. the TSP Homestead. All of the issues, including setting up paddocks, getting rid of the chickens, and doing all kinds of cool stuff, you might really like it if you check it out. Again, it's called The Duck Chronicles. Uh, if you're not where, if you, if you're not on the site, you can just Google that. You'll find it, but it's on the TSP website every day with daily updates, including adjuncts. Yesterday, Charlie killed a rat. You get to see a very proud Charlie dog with his dead rat on better things than dead rats. So let's talk about building a business from the ground up, uh, going in full bore, but doing it with no experience and a whole lot of other responsibilities. It's a tough thing. I know that from personal experience, but it can be done. Here to talk about that, the success, and more importantly, the failures that go along with it, John Adam. Hey, John, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. Nice to meet you on, on, on Skype here, and look forward to talking with you. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Uh, we're going to talk to you primarily about the fact that you're like a full-time family man, a full-time employee, and you're building a business on the side, which a lot of people think is kind of a crazy thing, and you might kind of sort of agree. I know at times I certainly did, but before we get into that and, and the role permaculture plays in that, can you start with kind of how did you end up in, let's just start out with your professional line of work. What, what do you do as a profession, and how did you end up there? Is it something you dreamed about doing when you were in eighth grade or anything like that? I don't think anybody or hardly anybody dreams of working in a prison. Uh, corrections is something you, most people just kind of fall into. Um, that's how I, I ended up in there. A friend of mine, his brother worked, worked in corrections and after a long hiring freeze, they opened up, uh, applications and my friend had a extra application. So I applied and it beat unemployment at the time is, is <laughs> really how I got into it. Really? Yeah, it wasn't. It was by far not a dream job. Yeah, I could imagine. What was your background before that? I I was in uh, wildland firefighting, working for the Forest Service. Oh, okay. So you so, did kind of have a civil service and uh, procedural background. Yeah, yeah. And back in '94, it was you know call it what it is, but it's affirmative action was big and strong in in the Forest Service and. A uh, white boy like me was not going to get in permanent. Mm. So I had to look for something alternative. And at the time, Corrections was experiencing a big boom in, in uh, you know, it's opening prisons left and right. We so, do incarcerate more people than any other country in the world. And I'm sure you've seen your share of people that both absolutely need to be there and probably your share of people that would be better off somewhere else. Yeah, and during that boom, I mean, California, talk about a huge increase in, you know, prisons built. It was, you know, they, they built 23 prisons in 18 years. Hmm. It was, you know, and, and now it accounts for 7% of the state budget to, to run all those prisons. And... <laughs> And they still don't have enough room for everybody. It's an interesting conundrum we've made for ourselves. We're we're releasing a lot of inmates that we used to keep. Uh, 
you know, corrections is, has been under large parts of it has been under federal receivership for several years now and order, uh, Supreme court ordered us to reduce our inmate numbers. So now you have a business that does things like permaculture assessments, small yard, backyard design, irrigation design, water catchment. So it's a, it's a far cry from corrections, which you still do as a full-time job. How did you get from the world of corrections to the world of permaculture? Well, I, I grew up, um, my parents were kind of back in the 70s in that back-to-earth movement. Uh, so I grew up where there were times where everything on our dinner table was homegrown. Um, in a lot of ways, you could say I, I grew up in Leave it to Beaverland. Uh, you know, I had a dad work, mom stayed at home. Um, it amazes me how my father was able to work a full-time job and do as much as he did at home. But that was their passion. They, they, you know, they enjoyed doing what living that way. And, and, you know, and it was something I, as I got older, appreciated more. And was there something maybe that kind of tipped that for you? I know she mentioned reading Fukuoka's book and. Well, you, I've listened to your podcast for almost from the beginning, probably a, month or two after you started it and I don't even remember how I came across it I think it was by accident and as you started talking more and more about permaculture I started looking into it and realized there's something to this and started looking at the ways I'm I was currently gardening at the time and it just made sense I you know I went to I started taking Lawton's class online, and that was just an incredible experience by itself. So is it a preparedness bug that kind of led you into the permaculture world like like it was for me? Oh, absolutely. You know, 2007, 2008, you know, when things were kind of going to crap, we I, I started, you know, going down that pre- preparedness lifestyle. And by the time, you know, 2011 or so, I felt like I had had enough preps and was looking for something more. I, I, I decided I needed to focus on more sustainability than just packing stuff away like a pack rat. Sure. <laughs> sure, definitely. So as you, you, you came through this whole transformation from – probably more of a, a things prepper to a, a lifestyle design preparedness and, and found permaculture. Um, you know, kind of before we can go there, what, what pushed you into preparedness? I mean, it sounds like we have some similar background stuff. Uh, was it just the family? Was it the things going on around you? Was there a, like a seminal moment? I mean, I, I think like one of my big wake ups was when I understood what the word unfunded liability meant for the first time. And I looked at that on the debt clock. And I went, well, that don't seem so bad now. This seems a hell of a lot worse. Was there any kind of a, a moment like that for you, be it, you know, 9-11, Y2K, a financial fact? Well, when I, I, when I transferred to the prison I work at now, there was already some people up there that were really into, you know, the government conspiratory stuff and, 
And one guy introduced me to your favorite, Alex Jones. Okay. And We're coming to get you now. That's, that's, that's right. <laughs> so I consider 2007, 2009 my paranoid years. Okay. And, you know, it was, I just, I got to the point where I outgrew Alex Jones. I, I, I can hardly stand to listen to him anymore because it's the same thing over and over. Yeah, you know, um, I'll tell you what I feel about that. It it makes me a little bit sad. I want to like what he's doing. People think I'm a basher of his or something. I want to like what he's doing, but it is, you know, I was talking the other day about torture. Like if somebody's torturing somebody, you can only do the same thing for so long before the area goes numb. And and that's yeah. what that seems like to me. Like it's like, okay, I, you know, turn them on once every two years now, and this sounds like the last time. Yeah, well, you've turned them on more recent than I have. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do think he's done some decent documentaries. I, I kind of agreed. Um, but when he get, you know, when he was on Pierce Morgan uh, show talk a few years back, and he looked like a complete ass. And I, I was like, you are doing more to hurt the movement than you're helping it at this point. Yeah. Yeah, that was, and I expected him to do well with that. I really did. Like, I did like, too, because Pierce Morgan, I thought, was a soft target. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was. I think what it was is Pierce is actually pretty good at goading people, like most people from from England are, and he was able to play Jones's emotions into a ridiculous overreactive level, and he made no sense. And then, like. I've screwed things up before. When you screw things up, you know the smart thing to do is go, yeah, I kind of blew that one. I'm sorry. He continued to like to defend like it was some glorious victory. Yeah. And it was he, like, dude. Yeah, he he uh, he doesn't know how to back up. Yeah. I do have to say this for the guy, though, and it's you know true of you, that he's the the shock point a lot of times for people. That make them realize, okay, everything's not so super. Everything's not the way it's been presented. And a lot of the stuff he reports is accurate. It's the conclusions that he draws from them, which if they were accurate 15 years ago, we'd all be dead. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> his show, every time it's, I've got a great show for you today. And it's, 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 and then he talks about what he's going to talk about later, but it seems he never gets to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, Another uh, show that, uh, well, documentary I saw was uh, Money Masters. I don't know if you ever saw that one. I'm not sure I might have. There's so many. Yeah. I mean, the guy is kind of dry, and it's a like a two-hour documentary or so, or longer. But he really does a good job of explaining money over the years, you know, going all the way back from, you know, biblical time forward. And... You know, I've I've seeked out quite a few documentaries and and picked out what I like out of them and you know toss the rest that I think is is not you know doesn't fit with my philosophy and ideology. So all of that stuff you you look at and it makes you realize something's wrong, but there's not a lot of it you can grab onto and do something with. So you find permaculture, and, and how did that lead you into creating a business? Well, again, you you tend to influence me on some stuff, and you know you talk about the freedom owning your own business allows you. Um, 
and really what pushed me over the edge finally was I'm coming to the end of my career in corrections. I, you know, I got five years left. Um, and I thought this is permaculture has become a passion of mine. Ask anybody at my job and, and they'll, yeah, he's, he's nuts over. Um, but I don't know how to explain it. Um, I wanted to have something in place that I could jump right into when I retire. And I think a lot of these permaculture systems do take time to get established. And five years from now, I think I could have some pretty good established systems running and be busy when I get done, you know. So you, you say retire. I mean, I know some of these jobs actually have like a 20-year thing. So where are you at with that? Uh, in corrections, we can retire at age 50. Okay. And at age 50, I'll have 26 years and some change in. Okay. So. And I don't mean to do the whole, you know, how old are you? But how how, how far out is that for you years-wise? Uh, five, and, five years and a couple months. Oh, okay. So that's... That's not, I mean, it seems like a long time, but five years can can sneak by you pretty quick. And, I mean, if you can build any kind of momentum up with this, it looks like you're off to a good start. Can you talk about what the company you founded does, what it is, how it works, that type of thing? <laughs> well, right now, I, you know, I'm, I'm easing into this. I don't want to, because I am busy with, you know, two teenage boys, wife, and, and a full-time job. So it's it's kind of a hobby business at this point that I plan on expanding as, as it goes by. Um, on the website, I list a lot of different things, you know, business wise I can do. I'll kind of learn from the permaculture stuff. Some of them, eventually I'll probably weed a lot of them out. It's kind of, just a list of stuff that see what people are interested in at this point to try to sort of find yourself and find your, 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 your anchor point, so to speak in the industry. Yeah. And I, I'm in a lucky position being full-time employed somewhere else that I'm not depending on it for a living right now. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I can take my time. It's and my wife, she's, she works for the local, healthcare industry, I'll call it. Okay. <laughs> and between the two of us, you know, starting a business right now made sense because we really needed to get some tax write-offs going. You know, that's an, an aspect of business that a lot of people don't seem to realize how valuable it can be. Um, I would never tell somebody, start a business for the purpose of losing money. But the reality is when you start a business – a lot of things that you would do anyway become deductible. Yeah. And some of it is like the stuff that everybody talks about. Like, for instance, you go to dinner with your wife now. You're involved in this business together. You have a legitimate yeah. discussion about the business. 50% of that just became a write-off. Well, let's be honest. You're probably going to eat that steak anyway. <laughs> right. Now, you can't abuse that. If you do that like every day and the deduction gets ridiculous in relation to the revenue, it can trigger audits and you have to do some splaining, as they used to say in the old Lucille Ball show. But yeah. if you have a couple dinners a month that you write off, no one has a problem with that. 
Yeah, and I, I it also I, this five year period has also given me a chance to to learn the business world. I really went into this not knowing anything about running a business or how to do tax stuff or you know it's wading through the the federal tax laws is is horrible you mean it's not fun <laughs> i never found it fun no 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 you don't what you do find fun though is after you figure something out and you go okay this is airtight i can do this if i am ever audited i'm going to walk in and go here you go here you go here you go and there's no and oh now i get to keep this money that part's fun and you're right the operational components of a business and this is something that maybe i've never appreciated as much as i should because my profession was the business side of things so that wasn't something that i had to learn as we developed a business so i i get what you're saying that someone new to business and i think that's why this this interview is very very valuable to people because there's people in your boat right now or thinking about getting in your boat And they're like, yeah. how, how the hell does all this work? And someone that's already done it's like, well, you just do it. And there's truth to that. But like seeing someone else in the middle of it instead of at the finish line makes people a little bit more willing to do it. And learning how your business will function at a time where making a mistake doesn't put you in the poorhouse, really valuable. Yeah. And there was a guy I work with that – kind of got me on that thinking that he says you're in a perfect position you, you don't re rely on this on your business to survive it's take your time you got five years and he's he's in the process he has his own winery now mm. works works corrections has his own winery and he is really somebody that i kind of admire for how he's uh, you know established himself in, in forming a business and 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 he's in the same boat I am he's about the same age we actually went to the academy together and it's just nice to see that his future is probably going to be bright in his business and it kind of gives me inspiration to to do better a better job in mine yeah absolutely that's good to hear other people doing stuff like this i i think we're returning to the mindset that's necessary for most people to have something Um, a hundred years ago, if you didn't have some sort of a side business or entrepreneurial thing going on, people looked at you a little like, well, dude, you're not, you know, what's up, right? We're now like, it's an oddball thing that you would have your, your own business or something to a lot of people. But I think that's, I've seen that shift in the last 10 years where owning your own business has been, has gone from something like that special people do to more of something that just about anybody can do. Now, another thing you have in your, kind of quiver here long term is that since you can take a project a month let's say over the next five years that's a pretty big book of business at retirement and then as you're looking to go more to let's say a full-time or at least a half-time world with it when someone says well what have you done well i've done all this and i think from a marketing standpoint at that point nobody cares that it was something you did part-time Right yeah. at that point, it's like, oh, this guy's got a five-year track record, and I think if you can kind of plug along at it during that period of time, um, you know, and I, I don't imagine that you retire to say what Neo with a, a corrections retirement, but it probably pays the basic bills, and then you can 
have a lot of stability in that building phase too because I've looked at like what you're doing and your rates are not real high. There's something the average person can afford and you can afford to do a project that way for them at this time where, you know, a person's a full-time designer and somebody wants you to come out and be on their site for three days in a row and you tell them, well, it's 1200 bucks a day. They're like, oh my God, well, uh, okay, you want me to travel 400 miles? You want me to stay there for three to four days? You want all this follow-up? Like, there's a certain cost to do that level of a project where you can work these projects like, Let's get all the prints. Let's get all the stuff together. Maybe if they're close, you can do a walkthrough. And you can give them a basic fundamental design for $500, $700. And that's right now, I I actually have my first design customer right now. And it's it's actually somebody I work with. And it's been, it's the region up here is so, you move five miles and, and you got completely different terrain. So it's given me a chance to learn the local area and how to design different aspects for the local area. But ultimately I can already see that design might actually be a side kind of a intermittent thing. And I'm really looking forward to actually getting some of these, you know, farms productive and getting into the production aspect of a permaculture farm. Um, my mom's property that, you know, the on the website you see the the photos of the dam that we built. There's there's about a four or five acre area there that I'm getting ready to really sink some money into and and develop. And I think five years it, it it'll be quite a transformation. You know what, that's another great point, that a lot of these systems take a, a number of years to become truly productive with an output, uh, unless you're doing ranching and you're doing animals. And if you're full-time employed, that's a little bit challenging at this point. So if you can establish, so another pathway to revenue for someone in a similar position to yours is, well, let's design the system to meet productivity goals in conjunction with my ability to separate myself permanently from what I do now. My, my other goal is, is to actually have a example that I could show people um, and, and maybe hold some, some workshops out there or, you know, but, but I want to get the local community more and more involved. Um, and I think the kids are, the local education, I think, is actually ready to hear a lot of this and, and start embracing it, surprisingly. Um, I've already talked with one of the high schools, and they, the teacher actually heard of permaculture, and somehow, through several connections, I ended up having a meeting with her. So it's something the local ag teachers are starting to get on board with, actually. Yeah, I, I, I would guess it would be. I got an article today from five different people that basically talks about how even the industrial producers today are saying that the, the biggest danger in humanity's future is not being able to feed ourselves and that they're not really sure what to do about it. I think what a lot of people outside of sustainable ag, permaculture, restoration ag, call it whatever you want, fail to understand is that even the people that are all about the chemicals and all – right now know that they are hitting a point of diminishing returns. Um, they, they know that this can't stay the way it is forever, and they know that demand is exceeding 
supply more and more and more parts of the world, and they don't really know what to do about it. And I think that could be good long term because when you know what you're doing won't work is when you actually become open to doing something differently. Yeah. Um, there's actually a guy on um, – he's on – he took Lawton's class, and he's doing a Kickstarter right now. He's just – he's maybe 50 miles south of me that actually is, is in the process of creating textbooks for middle school and high school kids. And I'm actually probably going to fund him at the high level and donate uh, the books to the high school. Hmm. Just, just uh, you know, here, teach it, you know, give them something. The, the, the teachers have already expressed an interest in it. So, you know, funding, the teachers getting funding for a lot of this stuff is hard to come by sometimes, you know, because school budgets are confusing as it is. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very very nice way of uh, of of putting it there. <laughs> I'll leave that one alone. Um, you feel that permaculture is not just a business for you, though; that it's actually transformed your life. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Well, it's it's kind of the ultimate expression of liberty. It it. You know, it, it, it breaks your dependence on outside systems. It's it strives for interactive diversity rather than monocropping compartmentalization. It, it you know it to carry that over. It, it, it keeps it teaches you to stop, observe, critically think before acting, which so much of society doesn't do anymore. They, they just follow along whatever the the you know NBC tells them to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that so so now we're we're getting to a different piece of permaculture. This is the one that I try to get people in this audience to to realize they should learn about even if they don't ever want to grow a peach. The 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 the, the methodology of analysis. Mm -hmm. So so when you look at something like a sector analysis in permaculture, we're looking at an agricultural field. Well, wind blows from this way in the north and that way or in the in the summer and this way in the winter and these are the harsh energies and this is the solar aspect and there's all that good stuff, but that same ana analytical process can be used to analyze a business. Where are the greatest threats to this business? Where are the greatest opportunities? Where are the edge interactions? I could analyze how a school works, probably not their budget, but how a school functions with that same type of sectorized analysis because it's, it's, it is a design science. And I think that it is one, like when people say like, how can I improve my critical thinking? Since I'm such an advocate for permaculture, I hate to sound like, you know, I, I'm, I'm just, you know, using this to, to spread the word, so to speak. But my honest answer is take a PDC. Because if you learn to analyze a piece of property with permaculture thinking, you can never look at any issue ever again without saying, well, before I just decide what this is. Let me pick it apart. Let me analyze it. Let me see how do all the pieces fit together? Where are the interactions? What, what are the elements of this? How do those elements interconnect? I, I think we could be teaching children this in school 
if they were taking engineering courses or if they were taking architecture courses or if they were taking mathematical courses or computer programming because it is it is that fundamentally universal and people think I'm overstating it when I say that but I I would imagine that you've had since that you've had that transformation you'd agree oh it it completely changes how you you see the world how you interact with the world I mean we we live in a throwaway society nowadays, you know, with, with, you know, things are built to fail and it really challenges that throwaway society. It, it permanence is, is what it's all about. It's not about, you know, using, using throw away. Um, and it really does open the creative centers of your mind. It, it, but in some ways it's ruined me. Um, <laughs> I can't go anywhere without, redesigning some person. I don't even know who they are. I'll drive by and look at their place and, Oh, they could do that better. They could do this, this, this. And, you know, I, I'm sure my wife just rolls her eyes at this point on a lot of it, but it really does affect you that much to where it changes how you think and how you view the world. And it, it really is a positive thing. I joke about it ruining me, but it, it, it has not ruined me. It, it's, it's an exciting thing for me now. I, I, I look forward to seeing new things just to try and pick it apart. <laughs> and I, I would imagine, you know, I'm a father and, and now a grandfather. And it, when you hear the prime directive, it, I think if you're a parent or a grandparent, it starts to take on a whole new level than it would to someone that's young and single when we say, you know, the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for that of ourselves and that of our children. When you look at your kids, you probably see the broader implications of permaculture's directive, but you also probably think, well, building a business is a lot about taking responsibility for their future. Um, designing my life is a lot about taking responsibility for their future, being able to show them where food comes from. That, to me, that was like one of the things when you talked about it, uh, being the perfect expression of liberty, like I think most people are disconnected with that actually is liberty. If you if you can't provide for the safety and security of your of your offspring, you don't have liberty. It's not no. it's not liberty. And then those things are the very definition of taking responsibility. So we think of his responsibility for our children as being some kind of a burden, but it actually is liberty. Because no parent wants to think when I'm gone they're screwed. That's not that's not liberty. And that and that's another reason I actually started the business was to give the kids and you know, hey, you can do this too. I've actually stressed upon them that whatever path you decide to take in life and, and make your career or you know, follow your passion, learn business because it sucks working for somebody else. And, <laughs> and they've, they've gotten that point. They're, they're bright boys. They, they, you know, do well in school. And my oldest, especially, he's a junior in high school. He doesn't, hasn't decided exactly what he wants to, you know, buckle down and study and make his passion. But he says every time, well, you know, business minor, but I haven't decided what I want to major yet. And, and I just kind of smile. I'm like, good boy. You know, it's, he's, he's getting that entrepreneurial, you know, mindset early. And that, that encourages me. 
Um. So, what do you think about preparedness now, maybe differently now that you're in a more long-term horizon sustainability mode? When you compare prepping yesterday to prepping today, let's say. When I first started prepping, it was done out of fear. Um, you know, the world was going to end tomorrow, you know, yeah. and, 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 and the same thing happened with the, the preparedness groups I was involved with. Um, everybody was paranoid at the time. And as the years went by, it was like, well, it didn't happen. Hmm. Now what? And it made me reassess where, where am I headed with all this? Cause you can drive yourself nuts preparing. Um, you're never going to be finished being prepared. Um, so I just started focusing on, you know, even if the end of the world happened tomorrow as we know it, you know, food stores are only going to last so long and eventually somebody's going to have to start producing something again. And, so I, I look at it that way as like I'm preparing while I, at the same time I'm I love gardening anyway. Um, so I enjoy the, the the aspect that I'm doing something to prepare, but following a financial and you know gain from producing your own food, running, you know, running a business out of it. It just kind of encompasses everything that just storing boxes of in your, in your garage or basement can't accomplish. And, and on the, like the activity level of getting some things done in permaculture, I guess you were saying you've done some work on your, your, your mom's property, which is great. I mean, why not start at home, so to speak, but you've done some pretty cool stuff. Maybe we can talk about, because I'm on your website, I'm looking at some of the uh, the stuff in your gallery. Uh, the, you did some terracing for fruit trees. I don't know if that was somebody else's property or her property or yours, but um, that looks beautifully done. The there's two properties there. The the one um, that shows the, tr the fruit trees planted. That's actually my property, and I can say that knowing now, if I knew now what I know then, I wouldn't have never bought this property. Okay. <laughs> um, it's, it's steep, it's rocky, it's, it's a lot of work to, to get anything done on it. Sure. And, but at the same time, it's, it's forced me to learn techniques running a, running a bobcat that I'm pretty, you know, proficient at it now. Um, but when I, somehow I talked my wife into buying the bobcat, I, I, I still <laughs> amazed that that even flew. Um, but I'd never run a bobcat in my life before I bought one. And it's been learning on the fly. Uh, but the other property that, that's on there is a friend of mine, his property. And I don't charge him anything because it's at this point he's into it. He's learning it. And we're building examples that we, we can, you know, use later to further the cause. You're gaining uh, the experience, right? It, absolutely. And and another thing, California is so screwy on its its permitting laws and stuff that 
you know, and, and what requires a contractor's license and what doesn't. And I, I really have to watch what I do mm-hmm. or I'm, you know, breaking a law. Yeah, there is that, isn't there? Um, <laughs> there's a lot of challenges in, in California. One of the challenges you guys are dealing with right now is a, a lack of water. That's a huge problem, and I've been I've been reading up on it a lot, you know, lately. And the I really don't know where how I feel about California passing a law last year about um, groundwater pumping. You know, traditionally California never had any laws regarding groundwater pumping in its history, and other states have, and, and finally California came on board last year, passed a law that by 2040, which seems really far out there, groundwater pumping has to be, quote, sustainable. How they ensure that, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, if a government person says something is sustainable, then yeah. magically a unicorn comes. From outer space, parts a rainbow on it, and it becomes blessed with the seal of the government, and therefore it must be what they say it is. That that's that's how you do it, you know. Well, to to put the whole drought situation in California in perspective, there are areas of the valley, Central Valley, that the land has actually sunk t- over 28 feet since 1925. The, the valley, because they pump so much water, is sinking, and it's causing its own problems. Uh, there's a The California Aqueduct runs right by this area, and they're actually concerned that they're going to have to rebuild that section because it depends on gravity to flow, and if you have a low spot, well, you, you got issues. Um, down by Bakersfield, there wells that used to only be 250 feet deep, they're now having to drill 1,200 to 2,500 feet deep for water. Wow. You know, and that, those cost 200 to 600,000 to to drill. So people are a lot of these farmers are actually having to mortgage their farms at you know, been in the family forever just to get water to, to produce their crops. Um, last year, 60% of, of the irrigation in California came from groundwater. And what part of California are you actually in? Because there's, you know, there's parts of California that get almost no rain. There's parts that get as much rain as I do. I'm up in the foothills in the, in the uh, just northwest of Yosemite. Okay. And south of Tahoe, so I'm at, I'm at, I'm right at 2,000 feet, so I'm I'm up out of the valley. Okay, and so what's your annual rainfall supposed to be there? I mean, typical I, is typical is around 34 inches a year. Okay, so that's that's Dallas, Texas. What have you guys <laughs> been getting? Uh, I don't remember what we got last year, but it was well under half of that. Yeah, that's tough. And that's yeah. where people need to realize, like, the, the 
the relativism of precipitation. So you can say, well, you know, this place here, they're doing all this stuff, and, and uh, typical rainfall in this place is 20 inches, and you got 20 inches, so what's the problem? Well, if the ecological development of the landscape over a thousand years was based on the fact that it was an aggregate average rainfall of 34, 36 inches, and now you're getting 20 for five years in a row, it's a problem. And then if you add unsustainable practices to that, it's a bigger problem. Which is what California strives in as unsustainable. But see, they're all green and there's hippies there. And what do you mean? It, it, I mean, <laughs> they're as sustainable as it gets, right? They have laws and everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work that way, though, in, in, in practice. Yeah. In Fukuoko's book, Sowing Seeds in the Desert, there was one section in that book where he talked about flying over California in the 1970s, and he was just sad because he could see it was back then it was becoming a desert. Mm. And I, that book really made an impression on me because he, you know, he was such an insightful guy and, and, and saw the writing on the wall back then. And, and, and everything he was saying in the book is coming true, especially when it comes to California. It, and looking at the history, reading up on the history of California, it's kind of an eye-opener of how much damage has been done to the state because of uh, modern, you know, quote, modern farm, farming practices. You know, and I think that the damage is everywhere. It's just more prevalent in a place that's so dependent on agriculture and has been so dependent on irrigation and then losing some of that irrigation and having a drought. Whereas there's a lot of other places where the damage is just as bad, but there's enough of a, a handicapping, I guess, not really a handicapping, a, a helping, I guess, from, you know, easy aquifers to be tapped for wells and from, you know, more forgiving landscapes that you, they don't see it. Like Iowa doesn't realize it's probably done as much damage. It just started out a lot more stable. And I, I think that's prevalent everywhere. I mean, I look at parts of Texas and go, well, I remember when I was a young man, I would drive across the state with my job. And I would like, man, this is all desert. And then you, you read about what those areas were like 150 years ago. And they were, they were deserty, but they were like a scrub desert, not a barren desert. And, and, and you, you look at it and you go, how did they do this? And they did it with poorly managing cattle because no one ever farmed a lot of those spots. Yeah. Um, it, so there's just so much of that out there, and it's it's disheartening because you think how fortunate would it be if all of that could just be put back with the wave of a hand to what it used to be? And I, I think the reality is people like Jeff Lawton, people like Alan Savory have shown us you can put it back – but you ain't going to do it with a wave of a hand or a wand or a farting unicorn. You're going to have to do it with real committed hard work. Uh huh. And what makes the whole California situation, it, it should scare everybody in this country what's going on here because California produces so much of the world's food and, you know, the nation's food. I mean, if you like almond, I mean, 99% of this country's almonds, artichokes, dates, figs, grapes, kiwi, olives, pistachios, pomegranates, walnuts are all produced in California. <laughs> and if there's no water to grow it, 
prices are going to shoot up. And, and everybody's going to feel the pinch on it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and you're there and you're dealing with all this and you're building a business in spite of all this. And you're doing it as, you know, a full-time worker, but also a full-time father and husband. So yeah. how have you balanced the, 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 the time commitments there? Well, work-wise, I've... <laughs> It's no secret at my job that I become very disenfranchised with the whole corrections, the way it runs. So I kind of shield myself from it. I, I work graveyard shift. Inmates are asleep for the most part. Mm. It's just kind of, it's quiet. And I can adjust my sleep during the day to, you know, make that basketball game or, 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 you know, make an appointment here or, you know, I, I can just, it makes it so I can adjust my non-work life to make it work. I'm sure it still gets challenging though. I mean, you, you've got, you said your boys are both teenagers. Yeah. I guess it's challenging, but it's also like, that's the point where it's hard to get them to settle anyway. Well, they, they... They don't want to be around their parents much at that age, you know, yeah. sometimes. They, but I, my oldest boy, he, he's currently playing basketball, and I, I make it a point to go to his games because and, and, that's something I enjoy, you know. And you just fit it into your, your, the schedule. You know, and, and I look at it, i got five years left of this. Those kids will be out of school by the time I do retire, so I'm, I'm – I see the light on the horizon that I'm going to have a lot more free time. Any thought on the business expanding enough to, to incorporate, you know, family and become a family business? Well, I kind of, you know, deep down, I hope that at least one of the boys may get interested in it. And, but I'm not holding my breath. They, they think it's cool, but, you know, you ask them to help sometimes and it's like, ah. <laughs> You know, typical teenagers when it comes to that. Yeah. And I was the same way as a kid. I And to come back and embrace it now, I, I uh, you know, I, if my dad was around still, I would apologize up one side, down the other about being a, you know, a putz as a kid sometimes. But I think every kid goes through that. Every adult goes through that. Yeah, definitely. So... Um, as, as you look toward the future, what are your, what are your thoughts on, like, as you transition, what do you, do, are you, are you there yet mentally or are you just like, I'm, I'm doing what I can until I get there. I mean, do you see when, you know, that final day comes and you walk out of the, the, the penitentiary for the last time and you don't have to go back there anymore and deal with that part of your life. Do you just kind of feel going full on at that point? Maybe Maybe saying, you know what, maybe it's time for two weeks to the Bahamas before I worry about this. Or, Oh, my wife would probably be on board with that one. Um. <laughs> May not be a bad idea, man. I mean, really. <laughs> well, there'll be a lot of it, – it's – I don't know. It's. I'll probably take a break. Um, but it's all going to depend on what her job at the time. You know, she's – Oh, that's true. She's – got a lot more years to do than I do in her job mm. and so really a lot of I'm going to be running around like a chicken with his head cut off 
with free time when, when I retire because, you know, the boys will be out of the house or, you know, at least out of high school doing whatever they do. And yeah, they don't always shoot way out of the house, let me tell you. <laughs> Sometimes they need an ejection button yeah. pushed, but... Oh, I enjoy their company, so I'm sure. At this point, you know, once they be, if they become a pain, then yeah, I'll, I'll boot them. <laughs> well, I think what happens at some point, you decide it's not that they're a pain; it's that they have to fly a little bit. So sometimes yeah. that that boot out of the nest is necessary. Um, it, I'm actually, try, I'm actually trying to get them. I'm looking to get them more involved with the business now. Um, my younger boy. He's a really good writer. He's got talent for writing that I, I'll never possess. And I'm actually thinking about having him read, you know, giving him three, four articles on a topic and digest it for me and, and put it start so I can start posting stuff on the blog that I have yet to even post on. My suggestion? Pain. Yeah. Pain? Oh, I, I'm going to. Yeah. That's, that may, may make him a little motivated. Yeah. <laughs> Money, yeah, he's they're they're both very motivated by money. Now you, you might you might pay him like in dinner, but I mean, <laughs> well, I get dinner anyway, not uh, necessarily. <laughs> shoot, pay, paying him ten bucks to write an article would be yeah. cheaper than buying him dinner. It is, it is. So uh, if folks want to learn more about the business that you you've got set up and, and beginning to to formulate, and maybe want to uh, to get some design help from you because you are you know in an area with a whole lot of people that are probably part of this audience. How do they learn more about what you're doing? Uh, they can go to the website, uh, Um And it, here's a gallery and a list of, of you know, services I, I aspire to offer, at least. Um, but... The website is the best way to, to get an idea of what I'm all about and what I have to offer. Well, let me just give you a little bit of a, of a, a bump in promotion here because I don't know you very well or anything, but I, I know when I look at work, whether it's done right or not, and the work that you've done is bang on. So... I would have no problem whatsoever recommending that someone, especially in your area, dealing with some of your similar challenges, uh, engage your services and give you a crack at some work. Because when you look at things, especially things like terracing, it's either done right or it's done wrong. And when it's done wrong, it don't work. Uh, yeah. And you, you know, for a guy that you say, you know, learn to run a uh, bobcat by doing it, you, you've, you've learned well because the work is done bang on. So, um, Keep doing what I, you're doing because you're going to have success. That. Keep doing it. I appreciate that. That that actually means a lot to me because you know so so much of this. You you first learning how to do it, you don't know whether you're doing it right, and that's one thing I, I can say about taking a PDC and, and how these PDCs are graded. And I, it would be nice to have a better critique of your designs that they you submit for your certifications where you're lacking, where they think you could expand on maybe, you know, kind of like how they do it in school when you turn yeah. in some kind of report, you know, that's something I would kind of like to see more of. 
I think that's one of the challenges we face doing PDCs online. You know, you have a thousand students. Mm-hmm. Um, you 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 go through the 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 design. All the elements are there. It's not an installation; it's a design. So it's, it's graded completely different than you would say. Let's say, uh, judge a design once installed. Does the student have a fundamental understanding of it? That said, when you go to an on-site PDC and there's 13, 15 students and an instructor and two guest instructors and uh, you have design day and everybody presents their design, there's a lot more time to go through the individual elements and, and give more critique, I think, than trying oh, to do it remotely. So that's that's one of the, the hang-ups we have. Um, generally, if you did it right, in my experience, from Jeff's course and from you know teaching our own now, you get, hey, you did good. If you did something wrong, you know, right? We've, we've kicked back designs. We've said, like, okay, that design's lacking key elements. This needs to be done. We had one design that, that Nick particularly in the grading said, now I'm going to have a conversation with this guy because, no. So if you get a passing grade, it's not like just a, a rubber stamp. Uh, we, we tend to go over them. But I get what you're saying because that's a limitation, and you, you wonder how you skin that. Uh, our hope is at some point, once we get through the bubble of designs coming in, to go through and maybe take a lot of the designs that students have said publicly, yeah, you can share this and go through and critique them, um, which I think would help everybody to see everybody's designs kind of critique because that's, that's closing the gap at the end that we, you know, it's a struggle with an online PDC. It really is. Well, I, I have yet, because I, I, I did your Perma Ethos class. And I have yet to turn in my design on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, get it on in, and we'll uh, we'll look at it. And uh, if there's anything wrong, I promise you, we'll we'll tell you. I've I I think we've kicked back four or five designs so far out of the ones that have come in. Uh, some real simple things like add a sector analysis. Some things like okay, that's des- not just not on contour, but designed in opposition to contour. That's not probably going to be a good idea. Um, in the end, you can do whatever you want, but when you're submitting a design, we want to make sure you understand the material. Um, but yeah, I think that's I think that's something that I would put on your bucket list, no matter who you are, is to at some point take a PDC from someone. I don't care if it's me. I don't care if it's uh, a, a guy that maybe I ideologically differ with a lot, like Michael Pulaski. Uh, I think he's a fantastic PDC teacher, though. So I think the critical analysis that we discussed is huge, especially if you want to. I would tell somebody this. I've never really put it this way before, but if you want to run a business, I don't care if it's on selling used tires. Take a PDC and then design your business. And uh, I think that's why you'll have success building yours, uh, John, is because you have that framework to work with now. And, again, I appreciate you being with us today. Uh, Thanks for having me on, and I look forward to actually seeing you at permaculture voices oh yeah awesome yeah i'll be there in just less than a month now yeah wow i gotta get ready to get out of here (laughs) (laughs) well again i appreciate you being with us today again folks the uh website is uh jmacpermagardens.com i'll have a link in today's show notes with that this has been jack spear good today along with john adam helping you figure out how to live that better life times get tough or even if they don't Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like the
there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.